episode 25 of the Treatment Room Secrets podcast. I'm very happy to be here with uh, in London with Aaron Ridley. Um, Aaron, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So you came from Oxfordshire, right? Yes. Tell me about Oxfordshire. Um, what, very... what, what takes you there? Did you, did you grow up there? Are you from there? No, I didn't grow up there. I grew up um, just outside of London in Hertfordshire, which is, again, similar to Oxfordshire. It's part of the, the shires, they call them. Yeah, um, but Oxfordshire is very green. It's Cotswolds area. It's very nice. It's out of the city. It's you know it's it's quiet and it's nice living. You've been there for a while, three years now, four years maybe. Nice. Um, and easy, but easy to get to. Uh, yeah, super Oxford. simple. Yeah, super super simple. Twenty minutes on a train to Oxford, or fifty minutes into central London. So every time I leave, I love London, but every time I leave London, like mm. exit, you know, London into Greater England, uh, it's so pretty. Yeah, I mean, everyone who comes to England and I've done a lot of traveling myself, everyone thinks England is London. I know. Then when Me you too. get outside of London, there's so much more. There's a whole lot more. There's a whole lot of history. There's lots of just really beautiful places to go to. And it's it's different. London is special. I love yeah. London. I grew up here and done a lot here. But uh, yeah, outside of London is also really good. Yeah. Um, so I want to start with kickboxing. Okay. Um, because it's kind of a crazy thing. Um, so did it all originate with you um, in London? Kickboxing? Uh, yeah, just outside of. So I have a bit of a, a crazy story which got me into kickboxing. Okay. So um, I started at 11 or 12 years old. Um, and the reason for it is because me and a friend uh, were going somewhere. I can't remember where. We were walking, doing something, whatever. And um, we got kind of attacked by a group of guys older than us at the time probably 15 16 and how they, old are you i was like 11 12 and they beat the crap out of us more so me than my friend i think he knew a couple of them so he kind of got a bit of a pass and i was like i'm not letting that happen again i don't want to find myself in a position where i can't protect myself and i want to learn how to protect myself properly and i've always been into martial arts always really loved you know, the old martial arts movies the bruce lee movies and everything kind of growing up um, and I, I thought, okay, let's go and find something. And I just so happened from where I got beat up with my friend, literally five minutes away, is a kickboxing club um, with a guy called Trevor Spencer, who I kind of grew up being coached by and ended up joining there. And the rest is history. <laughs> ended up there for, for a very long time. What age did you find yourself like heading towards the professional route? Uh, like 16. Yeah, 16, like, yeah, you know, like, like semi-pro sort of stuff at 16. Why? Do you feel competent, good enough? Yeah, I think I was good enough for it, definitely. I think, you know, I had a, a couple of fights and I had some, like, what you'd call, I guess, the talent scouts who would be from other clubs, other countries and invite like you to train with people. Like showcase yeah, yeah, exactly. So when they see you fight and think, okay, this guy's got potential, then invite you to do stuff or whatever or promote or whatever, stuff like that. So it kind of came about from there. I got an opportunity at, I think 14, 15 to ask to go and train in, and live in France, uh, which at the time I didn't do because of school and everything else and parents being a bit like, no, you're not going to yeah. France. Um, and yeah, just I kind of didn't do that. But then off the back of that, more and more came and just got more and more opportunities. And yeah, it, it grew from there. Became a bit more serious. Yeah. Um, do you reg um, regret a tough word, but do you regret not going to uh, France back then? Could that have changed no, anything, I, helped you in any way? It, it probably could have done. I think it would have opened more doors and maybe got into different arenas or whatever and, and created more opportunity. But I don't regret things. I always see the world and things and choices you make as that was what was meant to happen to get to where you are today. If I would have did that, unlikely I'd be where I am right now. So there's a whole catalyst of events that happen that build and build and build and over time makes you become who you are 
And for me, that's always a key thing. I always remember that in everything I do. So I, I wouldn't say I regret it. I think, yeah, it might have had opportunities, but ultimately I made a decision to stop competing in kickboxing because I got fed up of being punched in the head and kicked in the head. It was no fun way to, to try and make a living or to try and do anything. So um, yeah, I, I don't miss it <laughs> in that respect. What is um, what is the kickboxing scene like in England? Small, I think it's it's getting it has its times and it's had its moments. It was bigger when I was younger. I think that the kind of kickboxing I was doing, which was freestyle, full combat. Um, now you get more K one, Muay Thai, and a little bit of MMA, and they kind of bring everything together. Mm -hmm. So like MMA and UFC have kind of taken over along with uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and kickboxing has kind of been a little bit left behind, I guess. Um, so the scene now is, is pretty small. I don't think there's many clubs doing or or coaches or gyms running like that they used to back in the day. But also kickboxing, again, again to me at least, when I hear kickboxing, when I hear Muay Thai, I think about crazy people fighting each other yeah. and bleeding. Yeah, yeah. When you say kickboxing, I have that that um, image in my brain alongside an image of you know a group of old ladies um, in, <laughs> yeah. in a kickboxing studio absolutely and but muay thai think... doesn't have that connotation no um other a uh, taekwondo doesn't have that connotation absolutely. but kickboxing does kickboxing Why? always did because you'd get the I don't know, your gym instructors who would go and do a, a weekend kickboxing course and go and teach it like boxer size type thing for kickboxing and it, it developed a whole different kind of area of what it ever should be and kickboxing was always you can kind of break it down right so with kickboxing you have your your old ladies in the gym doing what they do and kicking pads on at knee height or something um then you'll have what is like the points fighting which is a little bit more like your traditional martial arts in the olympics or competitive fighting where it's very fast very high you know high pace fast stuff in and out uh, you're landing a couple of shots and you're going back you're not in a ring you're on mats on a floor like a karate type yeah like event. karate or taekwondo in in the olympics that you see very similar to that and then you get full contact kickboxing which is essentially it's boxing with kicks so you're in a boxing ring and you are you're fighting full contact um and then you get different levels of that too so you get ones with low kicks where you're you're allowed to kick below the waist and then ones with no low kicks so you're kicking above waist only so no no kicks to the legs knees shins whatever See when we like uh, when a random person like myself turns on the TV and you see mm -hmm. a uh, kickboxing event, we just have no sight to all these different uh, rules, yeah, regulations, oh, limits people are facing, and it just it can look you know funny and weird to some. Just like uh, you know, I'm a football guy, soccer yep. for the Americans. Um, I get how someone can, who doesn't know the intricacies and the rules thinks it's a bit of uh, it's a bit silly, you know, all these people running around the ball and yeah. Absolutely. It can, it can look like it has no direction at times. It's the same with any sport. It's all about perception, isn't it? And what you know and what you learn and, and how you get into it. And what the context so, is around that yeah, sport. Yeah, absolutely. So what what do you think, Um, like, you became a four times champion of Britain? No, just one. Oh, just, one, yeah, one just, time? Just one, but for around four years. Oh, um, oh so you held that title yeah. for four years. Amazing. And how many yeah. times did you have to defend? Uh... Well, not that many, thankfully. Um, yeah. Three, four? once a year generally so the kickboxing scene isn't as crazy as the muay thai scene where uh, where people will be out fighting once a month sometimes or a couple yeah. times a month or you know three four times a year um you know you only generally get shows where you can go and do something once twice maybe three times a year if you're lucky and if you're willing to travel all over the place yeah but in england 
or yeah, the Britain in, uh, in England. Yeah. yeah, if you go over to Europe and stuff, obviously you can do a lot more European stuff. There's there's plenty of European titles out there, world titles out there. You can travel. Um, I've been out to the US and done some bits out there, but never competitively really, but more for for training and doing little bits and pieces, exhibitions and showcases, um, but never never competed competitively in the US. But yeah, so there's there's lots of opportunity out there if you want to go and find it, but you have to chase it. Yeah, you have to want it. And what um you what year were you champion? Oh uh, God, belt? that was what two thousand early two thousands two thousand nine ten. So maybe? still um like UFC wasn't as popular no, as no, it no. is today. Nowhere near. There was little bits of UFC back then. It was more what's called K one. So there was K one kickboxing, which is where all the low kicks and stuff started to get really popular. Um, and then off the back of that, a few years later, it built into mixed martial arts and the mixed martial arts became UFC. The low kicks, oh, those are yeah. rough. Yeah, I don't like them. I don't, I avoid them. Every time I see a uh, yeah. shin to shin Instagram video. Oh, when the shin breaks and snaps. Oh, and, even if yeah. it doesn't break, just thinking about it. Yeah, you know? oh, the, the pain is awful. And Because um, I've, I've had like, again, football, I've had like... Mm shin guard to shin guard <laughs> and that's pretty painful yeah but not an intentional kick with no pads right yeah. and even with pads they hurt you yeah. know training you end up with bruises inside your legs and everywhere just from light kicks because it's not an area of your body that should be kicked or needs to be kicked and so is this correct that if you're if you're giving me a low kick mm -hmm. i want to block you with my shin yeah, that's one way of doing it. The best thing to do is get out of the way to not be hit. It's best not to be hit. But yes, a counter of it is to raise your leg uh, to either let them go under or let them contact with a more solid part of your leg. Mm, but not the shin. Uh, you don't want direct shin on shin because that's painful. Yeah. Like side. Thigh. Thigh is a good one. Yeah. So, a bit more mean, padding. So, so I'm assuming you experience a lot less pain physical pain in your day-to-day -day life now physically yes mentally maybe not <laughs> which will which again which we'll get into yeah absolutely which is the real difficult part but because i'm assuming again if you're champion if you're at that level then mm -hmm. you're i'm assuming training intensely every day yeah, yeah i'm at points three times a day yeah, yeah. four or five times a week yeah so, and yeah. what changed you think when um you you like you won that belt and now you have to defend a title mm -hmm. rather than chasing and being hungry to win something did you feel like that you changed that your men your mentality mm. changed that's an interesting question because i think in some elements yes i think because for me like i said I, I chose to get out of that sport and that arena because i just didn't like being hit anymore and although i was good at it i lost that passion for hitting people and also being hit and if you don't have that drive and that hunger and that passion to push you forwards, it's very difficult to go and train to do it. It's very difficult to go to multiple sparring sessions a week or get out of bed and go and you know get beat up for a couple of hours or whatever. So, yeah, I think that was probably part of what led me to the the point of where you know I don't want to do this anymore, for sure, because it's it's difficult to maintain that that level of focus that you need to have. Focus, drive, hunger. Yeah. Because there's two elements here. On one side, you're getting kicked punched all over the body yep but then you're also doing the same thing to yeah. you're inflicting everyone. pain on someone else right yeah and i'm a so is that something you thought about then i didn't you... think about it then i think about it a lot now mm. and even when like i still train now and i still do bits now and i'll occasionally do some sparring and i i always find myself holding back not wanting to hurt someone intentionally because of the work i do now and today i guess it's probably that has more of an impact on it and the way i think and view things but you have to have a level of aggression within you and it has to be controlled aggression because you can go and hit someone but if you're fighting someone that person is trying to hurt you 
and that person is trying to knock you out, take your head off, kill you, whatever they're trying to do. So you got to go back with that same ferocity. If you don't have that, you're you're not going to compete, and you're not going to be you know whoever you're being in the ring with someone who's like that against you because you don't stand a chance. Yeah, and one moment of you losing focus or whatever. one punch, one punch is all it takes. Especially at, you know the bigger weights and heavier weights in in any sport. But you know, the bigger the people, the harder they hit. <laughs> That's how it comes. Yeah. So and what yeah. what weight class were you? Uh, I fought um, between. I, you know, I was, I was going to guess, but then go on guess. But let's see, let's see. I'll tell you why I'm not going to guess because, like in the UFC, you know, mm. you see guys who are competing at 165 pounds. Yeah. They look bigger than me. Yeah, yeah. They look. <laughs> That's because they they walk around like yeah. massive, and then they diet down and dehydrate and everything, and get. So That's why I'm afraid light. to. But what, so okay, <laughs> I'll make a guess. In in pounds, do I go in pounds? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would say 175. Yeah, thereabouts. So yeah. I, I'm, I walk around average about 210 pounds. Um, and if I was to diet down and compete, when I was competing, I was around about 160, 180, depending on my age and where it was. And also similar like um, uh, weight cutting and uh, not as drastic. dehydrating. And... No, I'm not a fan. I'm not an advocate of that. Uh, I think it has too much of an effect on a person mentally and physically. And you see the stuff they do and where they dehydrate down cut the weight down sit in saunas in sweatsuits just to lose a few kilos for me that's not worth it professional levels where you're making millions okay fine if that's what everyone's doing to get that small one percent advantage over your opponent okay but um i would never do that i'll kind of try and maintain a weight and kind of slowly get down over a period of time and sit at that weight so i'm comfortable at it and then leading up to a fight you know a week or so beforehand i'd be at the the weight before the fight and the weigh-in yeah and then maintain it feel comfortable, feel strong, feel hydrated and get in the ring feeling the best I possibly can rather than dehydrated or rehydrated after dehydrating. Yeah. Um, but you're walking around at 200, 210 pounds. You're mm-hmm. fighting against big guys. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, anyway, if I do anything now, I have to. <laughs> Is that strange also just thinking about like walking in to a uh, ring with... Uh... Yeah, of course. It's intimidating. I think anyone yeah. has that level of fear or intimidation anxiety whatever it might be getting in the ring with anyone any size but if you're seeing someone bigger than you stronger than you you know it's more confident than you or yeah confidence for sure and it can scare the scare the life out of you if i'm honest Yeah. yeah so how did you um is it just by winning you get over it or repetition practice Winning, losing doesn't really matter hmm. at that point. To to get used to that level of being able to get in the ring and be confident and be you know be there and be present and be focused. It's just repetition. Just the more you do it, the more you do sparring, the more you're against different opponents, um, the more you visualize. Visualization is a great thing I found personally. Um, you know, there, there's always this thing where people say that the or psychologists say that the brain doesn't know the difference between imagination and reality. If you imagine something vividly enough it's almost as good as doing it for your mind and your body. So in terms of how your body reacts. How you react, yeah. How you react, how you react in the moment, your fight or flight response, your your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems yeah. and how you respond. I, you know, I'm, I, I practice yoga mm-hmm. um, and, um, and um, our listeners here have heard me talk way too much about it, so I apologize. Um, but on that point, um, I had a yoga instructor a few weeks ago mention that and the example, and as, as, at first, when you hear that, you know it's easy to be a bit dismissive. Of course. And yeah. they gave the example of sexual th- thoughts. Oh, interesting. That has an actual reaction, obviously, as we yeah, all know, yeah, in the body. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
she claimed that any thought we have, any visualization, yeah. affects the body. It does. Affects yeah. um, how we how we act, how we how we really interact with the environment around us. Just with things like sexual visualization, there's a physical um, physiological presence. Yeah, yeah, that we can notice. But there's so much thing that so much goes on inside yeah, oh, us that we 100%. don't see. Right? And you know. Many, many athletes for years and years have been using visualization at all sorts of levels, professional levels more so. And the more you can visualize doing something, the easier it is to go and do it under pressure. You've got to imagine a a football player who's got to perform in front of, what, 20, 30,000 people, maybe more. There is a lot of pressure that is on them, especially if they're like the star player and they're not feeling so good that day or however many things can be influencing them. Yeah they will likely visualize what they need to do and visualize being on the pitch, visualizing the plays, visualizing scoring, visualizing whatever, because it's more repetition for the mind. Mm. So like it almost gets gets you a bit more comfortable when yeah. you step on the on the pitch, then you're a bit you've less, already yeah. In your mind, you've already done it. You're not doing it for the first mm. time. It takes away that nerves and the anxiety around it as well. My dad used to tell me about visualization when I was very young. As a kid, it's so hard to understand what that even means. Um, Imagination, so I, isn't it? So I'd, I would imagine myself scoring a goal. I'd imagine myself doing all these things, but that that it wouldn't happen. You know, I'd imagine yeah, scoring a goal a million times, and I wouldn't score a goal. So in my you know in my kid head, I'm telling myself like this visualization stuff doesn't work. Obviously, it doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think the way you're putting it is very helpful mm. um, to people also to understand is that it's just repetition. Yeah. You know, you could, even if you, you know, you score a thousand goals in training, doesn't mean you'll score. Doesn't mean you'll score them yeah. in a game situation or a high pressure situation. acclimatized, yeah, situated. It's, it's part of preparation. Like people will always say, if you think it, you can achieve it. If you believe it, you can do it. Not necessarily true. It's very, very different, As right? Now, yeah. yeah. And like you say, you can believe or think you're going to score all these goals and you never did. It didn't work. But what you did probably do without realizing is preparing yourself for how you feel in that moment and how you feel in those situations and how you're less level of anxiety, nervousness, and you're just more wholly prepared. So that's that's the benefit of it that people miss. Do you remember what you tried to visualize before stepping oh, in the ring? Oh, absolutely. Every time I would visualize the entire thing. So I'd play the scenario out from walking from the, the dressing room out to the ring. So for the, the ring walk with the music playing that I had selected. Song? I had a few. Um, back then what did i have then most the one i enjoyed the most or liked the most was eminem dmx and i can't remember who it was it's called go to sleep so if you've ever heard it or haven't heard it listen to that and it's basically about knocking someone out and putting someone in the ground you know that kind of yeah. thing so it was very apt for what i was doing and it worked and having that as a connection you know that was my trigger to be like right in the zone flick switch to where i need to be focus on that and i'd visualize the entire thing you know, stepping out the doors, walking, walking through the crowd to the ring. And in those days, you didn't have a path. You almost just walked through the ring, through the crowd, put people, people pushing yeah. the way through. Right. So you got people in front of you pushing them out of the way and um, stepping into the ring, getting in the ring, moving around. I would usually do a one or two kind of sidestep circles around the ring in a clockwise direction. So I knew which way I was going, get comfortable, lean on the ropes a few times, just then look around, take in the environment and then just, yeah, focus. Well, wow. no, visualize um, that every time. Same, the, same routine. Can the listeners, viewers, um, see some uh, YouTube fights? Uh, yeah, I think so. There should be some out there. My name in YouTube, and I'm sure something will come up. All right, so but, I'll, I'll I'll look it up myself. Pretty yeah, cool. If not, I've got DVDs somewhere. So <laughs> then, so what would you visualize? Um, would you visualize visualize the uh, the knockout, the submission? Would you or would you? Uh, yeah, or would you visualize? I'm trying to like think. 
would you visualize you attacking or you not receiving you not being knocked yeah, out? Yeah, so I wasn't so much one for visualizing attacking people because I think that's just part of what you do and that's part of your training. What I would spend a lot of time doing is visualizing getting hit or shots being thrown at me. Mm. You know, visualizing how I would move, how I would respond, what are the cues, how what are they where are they moving their foot, their knee, their hips, their shoulders, where are their eyes looking. Where, what am I seeing them doing that give me a hint of what they're going to do next? So I'd visualize that and I'd try and piece together what an opponent might do to give me visual cues when I'm in the ring that, okay, if someone twitches this shoulder, they're going to throw a shot. If they twist this left foot, they're going to throw a right kick. So if you start to see those little things and you can pick it up based on what I would know about technique and how I was taught that everyone does because it's how you throw punches and kicks and whatever. Um, so I'd visualize that. And for me, that is repetition of learning how to defend because defending is more important than attacking most of the time, especially in combat sports. If you can't defend yourself, game over. Whereas, you know, you're there to attack anyway. But a lot of people can attack but can't defend. So I'd spend a lot of time trying to get really good at that. And that's what I would visualize probably nine times out of ten. Who, who put that on you? Who taught you to start thinking about things this way? Nobody. I don't know why. I don't know why I started doing it. Maybe I heard it somewhere. Maybe I've read it somewhere. I, I don't know. No one taught me it. No one told me about it. It's just something that I always did. And I don't know where it really came from. Can we uh, now take that visualization of defending, mm -hmm. um, anticipating some, uh, some attacks on you to real life? Um, because I listened to a podcast on stoicism mm -hmm. and there's a stoic belief that you know, if um, something can happen in the future, it's worth thinking about and almost visualizing or imagining how you will respond to those negative influences coming at you or coming into your life. Um, but also a lot of people, like, you know, uh, non-stoic people, um, think that it's unhealthy. Uh, think that it's unhealthy, like why being so negative? Why having all these yeah. negative thoughts? Why, you know, we don't even know if that's going to happen. Why are you bringing it up? In my mind, I, I, in my mind, said I'm always again. I'm not a kickboxer, but in life, I'm always thinking about um, the person punching me. Yeah, um, thinking about all eventualities and possibilities. Yeah, I guess the, with a, with higher emphasis on the negative ones. Yeah. Okay. So the question I would ask there is: Do you focus that more on? that you say negative, but do you feel a negative vibe from that? Do you feel negativity from it? Or do you see it as I'm just preparing for eventualities? Preparation, yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's that's better. What some people will do is they will get into that world and they'll think about the negative and they'll live that negative life. Also and like you imagining uh, or visualizing someone punching you in the face. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that that can also make you be more scared to walk in the ring absolutely it could do depends how you frame it in yourself yeah and for me it was reframing it to be prepared and done the repetition in my mind to be ready for that moment preparation same way like you said whereas for some people that might be oh no i don't want to get hit this could hurt i don't know what i'm going to do i might freeze i might get punched then what happens and then i get beat up so it varies from person to person i think and like you say when you transfer that into real life there's two ways of thinking about that stoicism you know uh, way of, of thinking are you doing it for preparation? Are you doing it to create anxiety, negativity, and worry in your life? And if you're more on the preparation side and just trying to prepare for situations, looking at how you can deal with certain things, how you can work through certain situations, as long as you're not getting too crazy with it, I think it's probably has some benefits and some uses. I think it's people don't recognize the difference in the framing. So, so. what do you think makes people frame it the non-preparation route? 
experience. I think if someone's had a more negative experience through life with something that, you know, situations go badly or they believe something might happen for them, um, you know, we only live our experiences, right? We only know what we know. We The unknown unknowns you don't know. So if you've had a life that's more focused towards negative outcomes, bad situations, you know, and you've thought negatively or you've kind of been negative before that, uh, I think that's where people struggle with reframing. If you say to someone who's experienced lots of negative stuff in their life, lots of trauma, lots of uh, bad things in some way or another, but trauma is normally the one, and try and explain the reframing concept to them, they'll struggle with it. And that's okay, but they will because they haven't lived the experience of reframing it in a positive way and what that outcome could be. Or even experiencing what reframing can do from you with negative and how you can use that to fuel something or, or change something. Did it feel good to win? Yeah, winning's always good. Knocking someone out. Winning is always good. <laughs> I'm highly competitive. Yeah. So and I've, I've always been really, really competitive, even down to stupid things. I've got kids now and I'll be competitive with them. <laughs> yeah. I won't let them win. Everyone says, let your kids win. I'm, no, my, so, my kids aren't winning. <laughs> so your kids, would you... Um, would you let them push them towards, um, you know, uh, mixed martial arts, kickboxing training? I've never pushed them towards it. I'd always make them aware it's an option. Uh, my daughter has been doing taekwondo and martial arts since she was four, I think, four, and she's 13 now. And I was never, never pushed her down that route, never that parent on the sidelines shouting, do this, do that. I got the skills and the knowledge to tell her what to do, but that's up to her coaches. I've always been very respectful of them. Um, some parents don't some parents will try and interfere and be the sideline coach or be the, the home coach or and try and do yeah. that I, I never have even with all my experience and everything I've done over the years I avoid that and I let them find their own paths uh, if they do something they enjoy it go at it do it I'm here if you need my support ask me otherwise it's up to you now that the UFC is so uh, you know sexy attractive out mm. there um, do, do you feel like um, the community of M MMA is like building or uh, growing in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, and, and with that, also like more crazy parents trying to push their kids <laughs> into this um, into this world. To, you know, to to be the next Conor McGregor or the next uh, what's the guy from Liverpool? Oh, Paddy. Yeah, yeah, Paddy. Yeah, um, Paddy the baddie. Um, so, firstly, yes, the community is growing. Yeah, I think the the, the martial arts community has grown massively. Um, my mixed martial arts UFC over probably the last five, 10 years has had a really good growth. Now I'm seeing a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, BJJ in the UK, especially tons and tons of people getting involved in that. People you'd never even think would get involved in it. I actually saw a video the other day of Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook. Yeah, he won some tournament. He, he right? won something in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and you look at him and think you would never do Brazilian jiu-jitsu as a, as you know, that, that person, what you look at that stereotype. So, they're out there. Communities are growing, definitely. I don't know if parents are getting pushier or not or trying to put their, their kids towards it. I think you'll probably see that from the next generation, from the people who have got into martial arts now. And failed. And failed. <laughs> or, or had some success or done something or yeah. whatever. And then as they have kids, they'll want their kids to go and do it and they may push them into it. That's probably where you'll see that. But um, at this point, you know, you'll always get pushy parents. Always. Yeah. No matter what you do, where you go. Um you always get them parents, like I say, on, on, on the sideline trying to be the coach, trying to tell their kids what to do, but they have zero experience and they think they know what they need to tell them. So you'll always get that 
but um it'd be interesting to see where the next generation of, of kind of kids and martial arts goes with the the parents who are really into it now and when they have kids what happens then yeah so after four years of defending your your title mm-hmm. um you just you give it up you um, hang up the gloves yeah i got to like 23 maybe yeah 23 and i was kind of thinking kickboxing doesn't make money you you can't make a living from from kickboxing realistically coaching maybe yeah okay you can but you know as as a whole it's not sustainable or not the kind of income or life i want to provide it for my family yeah um so i kind of thought right well I, I need something to to do here i need to you know make sure i have a career off the back of this whether it's in sports or whatever it might be um and going back a few years before that, when I was 16, 17, out of school, went to college and I studied sports nutrition and performance excellence and exercise and stuff with a view of becoming a personal trainer, coach and having that background. I got a year and a half into it and dropped out. I was like, this, this isn't for me. I don't want to do this. Um, then went to work for a little bit. And this is all while still kickboxing. So over yeah. that period. Do you know why you felt like that wasn't for you? Didn't have the passion. Mm. You know, for me, I'm always been very passion led. And if I don't have the passion, then what's the point of pursuing it? Because you're not going to be the best at it you could possibly be. Go find something else you want to do. And, you know, my parents are always really supportive of that. And they would say, well, if that's what you want to do, go do it. They wouldn't really interfere um, much as they wouldn't really even guide. It was, you're on your own, go do it, go find what you want to do, which worked out very well for me in the end. But um, yeah, so dropped out from that. And then I found while still kickboxing i found motorsport uh, and racing and thought oh, this is this is really cool i really like this and i've always been into to fast cars and fun stuff and everything else so i i went a uh, i was 19 at this point so i didn't get access to free education i had to go and self-fund anything i wanted to do but i went and done a um apprenticeship diploma hnc then onto a degree in motorsport engineering which i, I self-funded um, at Silverstone Racetrack here in the UK, so the home of the British Grand Prix. Worked, I lived and studied there, which was amazing. And I had a huge passion for motorsport and racing. And then this was at the point where I was getting older. And I was like, right, okay, well, kickboxing's not making any money. Here's something I really enjoy and something I can go and do, and it will build a career for me. So I was like, right, well, this is where my focus goes. You know, you can go and do two things half-heartedly, but if you do one thing and focus on it really well, you'll be way more successful. So that was a big influence in in what kind of led me down that path. And also I had a kid at this point. I had a kid really young at 21. So I was like, right, I need to provide for my family. I need to find a way to build a career that that helps. So, um, yeah, that's those were the influencing factors, I yeah. think. And then the injuries as well, which you mentioned. Or not injuries, yeah. but you mentioned being kicked yeah, in the face. Yeah, I, I didn't really get much. injured. I, I got through my kind of kickboxing career yeah. uh, without being too badly injured. My injuries actually came after i stopped competing and fighting i had some pretty major bicep tears and all sorts i've had surgery on my arms but um yeah i got through that but yeah getting kicked and punched in the head to to try and make a little bit of money wasn't fun yeah um so were there any injuries along the way that sidelined you broken nose usual couple of teeth knocked out but yeah but not like, really real injuries not like the ones you hear about your... no nothing that stopped me from competing or fighting like you know my, my bicep injury that i had afterwards i got while still training i was actually um in a, a training session with my coach i was sparring with him i threw a, a body shot at him and i felt a pop and i looked at my arm and my bicep was in my shoulder and it's like that doesn't look right that um 
<laughs> yeah, he took me straight to the hospital. And then um, a week later, I had surgery for them to mechanically reattach the bicep. So that's my worst injury, but that came, well, that was probably about seven years ago now, like 2016. I, I stopped fighting in like 2010, 11, so way after. Well, um, and during your fighting days, um, as part of your like gym, um, do you have like a team around you, people taking care of you, people guiding you? Um, I did, yes, absolutely. So obviously I had coach and stuff who look after you. Um, I had a, a local kind of business, I guess you'd call it, who run like an athlete support program. Mm. Um, so provide all kind of like, you know, training, nutrition, everything that you can do to look after yourself and maintain. Um, there wasn't the budgets like you get in boxing or, you know, the, the funded sports. There was no funding for kickboxing. So it had to be kind of either through sponsorship or businesses who are willing to support or like, yeah, you go funding your own sponsorship as well with companies. Um, I was fortunate that I knew someone who was doing lots of work in that space and they got me on this athlete support program and they, they looked after me in terms of, you know, training plans, nutrition plans, uh, physiotherapy. So if anything for like, you know, regular maintenance or little twinges and pulls here and there, go and get massaged and stuff. Yeah. So would you like, would you uh, be on a maintenance program to make sure you're fit, to make sure you're yeah. good? Absolutely. I tried to get to a, a physiotherapist at least once a month um, to, you know, just go and get everything kind of rubbed out. Probably isn't the right word. Yeah. <laughs> go and get your, you know, everyone knots out and yeah. make sure you still got flexibility, range of motion, saying supple. I think it's probably the right way to put it, but yeah. looking after, looking after yourself. And it's amazing. Just for you personally, those, those moments uh, you enjoyed that you felt that helped you. Yeah, absolutely. That I you were know. excited to go, like you know, when someone has a uh, dentist appointment. Uh, I didn't like going because mm. it's it's painful. You mm. go and get a sports massage, they hurt. But it's afterwards. It's like that that high you get afterwards. You feel really good and you feel fresh and you feel like you can move well and everything. That's the part you look forward to. But actually, during a sports massage, you don't care who you are. No one likes it. It's interesting though because I know what you're talking about, mm. but it's also you kind of want not to like it. Yeah, you know you because because yeah. when um, when you go for a sports massage and it's you, you kind of want to tell them, can you go a bit harder? Yeah, um, I don't want to be even though you know it's going to hurt. Yeah, 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 yeah even though sure. you know it's going to hurt. I, I had one probably like three months ago. My my fiance took me to a spa for a day for my birthday. It's about six months ago now, and um, I hadn't had a, a massage in a very long time, a professional one. And um, the woman was like going fine and whatever. And, I was, and she's like, do you, want, do you want it harder? I was like, sure. Next thing I know, she's got her elbows Oof. in my back and everything. <laughs> and it hurt. Like it was agony. But I couldn't sit there and say, no, not that hard. Because, yeah. you know, masculinity and everything else and meant to be strong. So, yeah, it was painful. <laughs> do you, um, based on that as well, um, a friend of mine said the theory to me about men um, mm -hmm. is that from in a in a man's mind there is no problem until it's spoken yeah oh absolutely. until it's spoken out loud if it's not spoken out loud yeah well I we're pretending like there's no problem everyone around us doesn't need to know about anything yeah well men are notorious for keeping stuff to themselves not talking not being vulnerable bottling stuff up i, I did it for years as a teenager and you know early early 20s i didn't tell anyone anything i was emotionally numb and i think that probably came with part of the persona of being being a fighter being a champion being someone who needs to provide i can't be weak i can't be vulnerable so you, you end up bottling everything up and i think that's common of most men so why do you think that happens Ooh, society pressures peer pressure stuff that we tell ourselves that probably isn't true but we think it is but is it um is it bad 
you think? I think it is. Yeah, I think it has an effect. There's there's a level where probably okay, keeping some stuff back and not showing everything, being highly vulnerable and being highly emotional, probably would be more detrimental than good. But there has you have to share something. You have to talk about your problems. You got to share where you're struggling or talk about anything because if you don't and you bottle it up, that just builds and builds and builds. Like compound interest, right? It's going to keep going and going and going and growing on you, and one day there'll be something. And you'll have a meltdown or you'll explode and something will go very, very wrong for you. You just don't know when. Yeah, it's like um, a ticking time bomb. But is it? do we have to know who to open up to and when to open up to? Are those t- two key factors? Because yeah, I, I can also see it how, how it can like almost mess someone's life up if they're just spilling out. Yeah all the time what's going through their mind and their insecurities and their fears and all yep. these you know weaknesses or whatever um the vulnerabilities mm-hmm. so are those two important factors like yeah, when for, and how for sure and like, to who i wouldn't go and pull off random person off the street and start telling them how i feel emotionally yeah. and everything i don't think anyone would ever really do that um yeah there are there are right times right places right people of course and for me that's more about self-awareness is understanding yourself enough and learning about yourself enough to know when to expose your weaknesses or your vulnerabilities. And having someone who you trust is a key thing. Having someone you know will listen to you, I think. Yeah. If you've got those two things in somebody, then generally you're they're okay for you to, you know, talk to and, and to unload on them. But if you're Aaron, so you're twenty years old, you're this fighter, mm-hmm. you're this tough guy that everyone knows, um, never vulnerable you keep everything to yourself but what if you did have two people that you trusted that you could spill your heart out to but 99.9 percent of people that know you have no have no sight to your vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. do you think that's okay because you have your outlet yep and you have people you trust it's two it's one it's five Mm -hmm. because i also like also me personally like you know my vulnerabilities i don't want everyone in my um social circle in my you know community to know all of my vulnerabilities of course uh, but there's vulnerabilities that i'd like to share with you mm-hmm. to share with my mom to share with my sister to share with my girlfriend all these different people but not the same vulnerabilities it's like of almost course. like a game yeah yeah um, sure constant moving pieces around right yeah yeah that's an interesting theory because i think we all do that naturally one way or another whether you're consciously thinking about it or not you will share with people what you feel comfortable to share with them and if you're comfortable with that person in that moment and you want to share something, do it, right? But again, as long as you have that kind of trust and someone who will listen, then I think you're okay. If you unload everything on one person, you've then got to think about them and how they're going to react and how they're going to feel and what's going to happen to them if you tell them all of this. Like if you went to your your mum, for example, with every worry, fear, anxiety, vulnerability you have and unloaded it on her, she's probably going to feel pretty terrible. Whereas if you just talk about the things you know maybe she can help with or give you advice with or just listen to that will help you that will be okay but if you went in on for an hour talking she'd lose hope in me yeah yeah or, or she would probably feel like she failed even as well yeah, right yeah. so there's a whole load of things you got to think about all the aspects of how someone's going to react and their perception you know perception is a huge thing in that and i always like to talk to people about perception because we all experience it every day but i don't think we think about other people's perceptions often enough yeah so a really simple example. Um, have you ever sent a text to someone and you've meant one thing and they've read it completely Absolutely, differently yeah. and come back at you and it started a whole different conversation or argument or confrontation? That's perception. 
you know, your your perceived intention is different to how they've perceived it. And if you're not aware of that and they're not aware of it, that's how you get conflict. Whereas if you actually start to think about, okay, how are they going to perceive what I'm going to say? How's it going to affect them? You'll have much better conversations and interactions with people at any level. Off air, we spoke about um, Stephen Bartlett, the yep. Diary of the CEO. So and I mentioned I watched the episode with uh, Simon Sinek. Mm -hmm. um, so at the end of the episode, Stephen Bartlett asks him what his biggest insecurities are. Right. And immediately Simon Sinek said, that's none of your business. Um, yeah. And he goes on to explain, like for him, there are things that he should not share about mm -hmm. himself on a podcast to millions of people. Absolutely. But to the right person, yeah. share one point and maybe someone else that he trusts, you'll share another point of insecurity, vulnerability. But, but is the purpose to, in terms of how you see it, to, you know, if I share something with you, is the purpose for now you and me to kind of maybe bond over the thing that I shared with you and together maybe help me see a light at the end of the tunnel? Is is that the goal or am I, is it just an outlet of energy where I'm, I'm not the only one that knows? And I'm, because I've also, you know, I've heard people say that you need an outlet and mm -hmm. that outlet doesn't necessarily have to be a friend or a partner. It could be you going to the woods and just screaming everything you have to um, yeah. let go of. Could be a punch bag. Or, or a punch bag, yeah. <laughs> but, but verbally, like the verbal yeah. thing. Yeah, if you speak it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um. So is that something that you play around with, with yourself, maybe with the people you work with or I think guide? So. Yeah, I, I, certainly with, um, so I do a lot of coaching and mentoring as well for business owners across the UK as part of a government scheme. And I think that's definitely something I, I use with people and it's, you know, about finding the right person to feel comfortable to be vulnerable to. Um. Again, you know, the little pieces giving and spreading it across others is great. But I don't think the purpose necessarily of sharing vulnerability is to bond. Because if you're doing it with that purpose, it's kind of false, right? You're, you're if I'm sharing vulnerability just to feel closer to somebody, that's not really the purpose of my vulnerability. My vulnerability is there because I need to share something. I need to get it out. I need to have an energy outlet. So for me, it's much more what you said about having an outlet of energy. And... Sometimes, you know, a vulnerability or the way that people share things, they don't want you to talk back to them. They just want you to listen. They just want you to be there for them. And I think even, you know, Simon Sinek said it, sit in the mud. It's, it's that same concept. Just listen. Don't say anything. Just be there for that person. And in some of the, the teachings that we do in our courses, we have something similar and it's called sit in the shit, which is the same kind of thing. You know, and we can talk more about that, but we have a whole module and a course based around just listening, active listening. And it's about learning how to prompt people to get more out of them, to get them to to go on. You know, if someone's saying something, don't stop them. Let them talk. Let them say what they have to say. Let them know you're listening and prompt them. Keep asking them for more. How is that? How does it make you feel? Go on. Tell me more. You know, once you start doing that with someone, you'll get way more out of them than if you just listen to what they want to say on the surface level and then start responding. Humans have a really bad habit of listening to respond rather than listening to listen. Halfway through a sentence that someone said to us, we'll probably already have the reply we want to say back to them. And we haven't actually listened to what they're saying. And that's where you're listening to respond and say what you want to say to have value or have significance. Mm. That's not listening to the person and what they really need and adding value to them. So it's that active listening. And it's about, you know, what are they actually trying to say to me? Why are they trying to say this? What do they need from me from this interaction? And for me, that's what sharing a vulnerability should be about. 
and it's a personal you feel because also you mentioned that um you bottled up a lot mm. um so have you changed your mindset on that do you try yeah. and be as open as you can be absolutely um i mean the work i do now i i, I can't can't do, not be uh, yeah i can't do what i do and, and preach what i preach and teach people the things i do without practicing yeah. myself because be a bit of a hypocrite um i think i learned along the way of going through life going through the motions and building a life which i thought i was happy in to then realize that i'm not that bottling things up was never the way to to do it and you have to talk and if you're not talking you're on a path for self-destruction and that's ultimately where i ended up and I learned from that. And the last six, seven years is all about being rebuilding and being bigger and better from that. Can I ask you about the destruction? Yeah, sure. Um, I haven't really talked much about this openly, to be fair. So this is a, a first. Yeah. <laughs> so only if you're comfortable. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. So I was, I had a kid at 21, right? Um, got married at 22. Uh, very, very young, married to the wrong person, to be honest. And, you know, built a life of trying to sustain and be what I thought everyone else thinks I should be not being what I wanted to be being this person who has to provide for this child being this person who has to provide for for this wife that I had and for this family and this image of family that we all get taught is so important to us and I wasn't right in that place I wasn't happy I wasn't living me I wasn't living my true self I wasn't you know passionate about what I was doing like I say just going through the motions and ultimately it ended or it led to uh, divorce and a you know, relationship breakdown and everything kind of completely falling apart um, about six, seven years ago now. So it's just you going through the motions and just keeping everything inside. Like you, you feel yeah. like something's not right, but yeah, you're just yeah. keeping it being, being that typical man in a relationship, I feel like this is what I should do. This is my family. This is what I should be providing for. Forget about myself. Forget about my happiness. Let's make everyone else happy and, and deal with that. And um, I became a bit of a, I say a bit, I became very much a people pleaser. I couldn't say no. You know, I couldn't, if someone wanted something, sure, let's do it. If someone wanted me to go somewhere, okay, let's go. If someone wanted my help, absolutely. I'd find myself doing all sorts of stupid stuff. Like, you know, for friends even, even like, you know, friend, I had a, a background in mechanics and engineering. So I'd end up fixing people's cars almost for free and in the rain and the cold and snow even outside, you know. I remember one year I, I replaced an engine in someone's car on a hill slanted in the snow and i got i was doing it. i was like what on earth am i doing why have i said yes to this and like maybe i got paid like a hundred pound <laughs> i was like this has taken me like 10 hours and it's cost me that like, cost me money probably and i've made no money from it yeah but it's all because i couldn't learn how to say no and because i became that people pleaser and that was present in so many areas of my life whether it's friends family relationship work everything and I think everything combined there is what led me down to that that self-destruction and being, okay, this is game over. I, I can't can't do this anymore. And then the relationship breakdown, you know, getting divorced, having two separate homes for kids. Uh, was was that the switch, the divorce? Uh yeah. Yeah, definitely. So like is that like is that like for you um an opportunity even to like reevaluate yeah, for yourself? It, it really was. It was an opportunity for me to be like, okay, who am I? you know, really dig deep inside myself, a lot of self-reflecting and work out who I am, what I want to do and who I want to be and how I want to add value to this this life that we have. And that's where my passion and my pursuit of service and helping others, coaching and mentoring was born. And I think over the last seven years, is why, that's why I've been working and perfecting that. 
try box yes so it's it's you seem passionate about it um, it connects to i think everything we've spoken about yeah um your and i'll let you explain it better but you're training people you're coaching people mm-hmm. through mental well-being mental toughness emotional mm-hmm. intelligence but if things that are less visible maybe yes um yes. so yes yeah, so, so how do you best describe what you guys do at trybox so um it's my life's work i guess has kind of come to this and my co-founder is very similar to me he has his own journey and story which has led him on the path that he's on and that's dave um, Earl. Yeah, yeah that's dave yeah he's got a, an amazing story he's been doing 20 odd years of, of working mental health and he's he's been awarded an mbe for the work that he does um but for myself and how we got together and what we've built is the world is super reactive to mental health and well-being yeah and i think that an important thing to recognize here is mental health and well-being are not the same and then there's mental ill health and other definitions of mental health right yeah everyone tends tends to put mental health under one banner but it's not the case um so yeah the world is very reactive to mental health and, and well-being you know we have tons of really great services out there that are there for people who need help for sure but they are reactive right so doctors therapies talking groups antidepressants other prescribed medications all help people who need help but it's too late they're already suffering they've already got the problem why would you help someone at that point why not try to help them or educate them beforehand so we've come up with this kind of concept at tribox where we've developed free courses and about 20 or so different modules and them courses which is all about preventative education for mental well-being and mental care. Um, and uh, on in those modules, we cover things like you know, resilience, mental toughness, uh, choice, uh, a whole load of other stuff, massive list of, of stuff, 20 different things altogether. And we've put together this kind of unique model, which is the first of its kind. No one out there is doing anything that, that we've done. Uh, I've been sharing the, the content and sharing the modules and everything that we do as openly as possible with as many industry experts as I can to show them this. And everyone's coming back saying no one is doing anything like this. This is very much needed. You know, this area of prevention is something that people talk about a lot, but no one's really doing anything about. Yeah. We talk about treating the the cause and not the symptoms, but we're still treating the symptoms. You know, all the services are out there now, the reactive services, they're just treating the symptoms that after the fact they're helping someone when they need their help. Intact with most pathologies that we yeah. experience right? absolutely yeah we're, we're yeah. always thinking about the symptoms the yeah. surface level western problems. medicine especially right i think you know eastern chinese medicine they, they're maybe a little bit different there's a bit more prevention in what they do but western medicine today's world yes absolutely and there's the argument of big pharma trying to keep people sick and treating the symptoms and ongoing yeah, medication yeah. to make a business and whatever but we won't get into that <laughs> but but yeah there is not enough emphasis on prevention in so many spaces of you know of, of uh, well-being and healthcare but in mental health i think it's a massive area where you can make a really big impact in a relatively short amount of time that will be lifelong lasting for people you know, the, the learning you get from what we do with them will last an entire lifetime for spending a weekend with us yeah do you have a couple examples you can try uh help us visualize paint um <clears throat> from a couple modules maybe your favorite moment when you're with these people yeah of course so my favorite one with i'm people, assuming you know it's 
people are in this um, setting where they have to be vulnerable. Yeah. They have to step out of their comfort zone yeah. and do all these things that I'm assuming that most people are terrified of doing on a yeah. daily basis. Oh, absolutely. So we, we have a, the courses that we run are very interactive. We won't do, we won't get people in a room and get them to sit down and listen to someone talk for a day or whatever. Yeah. Because you just lose engagement. People don't retain the information. They're very interactive, right? So we, we have a ton of discussion in the room. We're asking lots of questions, getting people to give their opinions, feedback, sharing their experiences of being vulnerable. And we set that tone from the very beginning. I'll always start, of course, with asking people, tell me something interesting about you and go around the, go around the entire room and everyone gives one interesting thing about them. Inevitably, it's something that's quite mundane and boring and not that interesting. But by the end of the day or the weekend, everyone has shared so much and everyone has been so vulnerable and been so open in the room that there's so many interesting facts that you would never would have expected that suddenly by the end of the day, you've heard 10 interesting things about that one person who couldn't tell you one interesting thing at the beginning because they haven't opened up. So because we foster this environment where we have so much interaction and people talking and engaging and doing activities, it organically and naturally comes out throughout the day. And the more people share, the more others want to share. And because of the questions we're asking, people just want to get involved with it. So to that point, your, your question, my, my favorite one is we like, well, I really like doing pieces on identity and purpose. So understanding what, what's your identity and what's your purpose. So it's a simple question that I ask everyone and we do an activity on this specifically. And it's, who are you? Ask that. I'll give them 10 minutes to come up with who they are. And everyone sits there looking around like, oh, who am I? Who am I? Like, don't, people don't know. And there is a, a massive problem at the minute of purposelessness, if that's even a, a real word. A lack of meaning. Yeah, a lack, lack of, of meaning, yeah. right? A lack of people not knowing their purpose or finding their passion in life. And in the UK alone, I think the statistics are crazy. It's something like 90% of people lack a sense of purpose. Um, I think it's more younger people than, than older, but even still, 90% is is scary. So my favorite module to do with people is, is around that on purpose and identity and talking them through that and getting them to share their passions, their goals, their aspirations. Normally it will start with, you know, if we ask them their, their, their passion or sorry, their, their identity and it'll be, I'm a coach, I'm a personal trainer. Yeah. And I've always got to remind people and say, that's not who you are, that's what you do. What you do does not make you who you are. You know, it's two different things. And I think people in every industry are, are very guilty of attaching their identity to what they do, right? Because they're a, an accountant or an engineer or whatever their job might be. That's become, that becomes their purpose or their identity and who they are. Where in reality, they might love tap dancing. <laughs> you know, they might love doing something completely different that actually plays more to their identity and their passions. And it's about finding that in people and getting people to recognize it and realize it. And people who come on our courses normally have a, an identity or passion or purpose aligned towards helping people because they're, they're in the industry they're in and they're coaching people and they're developing people. So we can normally pull that out of them fairly and relatively easily. But it's always my favorite because you see people's eyes light up when they realize who they are or what their passion is. Or once they've done 10 minutes digging into it and being like, actually, yeah, this is who I am. And they come into the room probably not knowing who they are or what they want to be. And for me, that adds the most value because... You know, we do a whole course with people, but that one thing can change the course of someone's life entirely. And I'm hugely passionate about that. 
<laughs> the more impact I can have on people, the more impact that we can add and value and contribute towards people, the better. And if we can do that just through something simple as finding someone's identity and purpose, I would do that with every human being on this earth. What part, what module, I'll put it that way, is maybe the hardest for people to um, overcome, to step up to? Yeah, um, I think the hardest one is, so when we start the course on the level one, we do three modules at the beginning to help people get a grasp and understanding on mental health and well-being and where it is today. And I think that's probably the hardest to deliver, those three. But why? Because we don't know much about it? Yeah. Us, like, you know, yeah, just yeah. the average person on the street? Yeah, everyone comes in with their own ideas and preconception of mental health, right? So you've got to kind of align and get that together and explain to everyone what it is. And we do mental health overview. We do... Um, oh, God. <laughs> oh, what is the best way to look at um, mental health? Because you know, I'm, not, I'm not sure that... I'm sure mm. on how to how to look at it because you hear different things from different places. Um, you know, some will tell you that it's a chemical imbalance. Some will say it's not a chemical imbalance. Some will say that you know people are just uh, whining. Some will say that it's um, snap out of it. Yeah, do this, do that. Yeah, um, so it's just hear all these different things from all over the place. And as you said, we just use one term, an umbrella term, yeah. for probably so many little things. It's like saying you know you have a muscle injury. Mm -hmm. We have hundreds of muscles, so it could be right. Could any, be any, any of them, one right. of them. Yeah. Um, so, what is the best way to look at it? Mental health or mental well-being? I think that termination there. So, mental health actually probably should be mental well-being, in my opinion. So, we have the two separate terms that people use. Yeah. I, I don't like the term mental. Health. I heard mental um, fitness once, and I mm -hmm. like that one. Yeah, mental fitness. The same mental fitness, mental resilience, emotional fitness, emotional resilience as well. You can have that. Um, yeah, we teach mental fitness as such and, and I think that's a really interesting concept because it reframes the word mental health and some of the, the modules that we mentioned that are the most difficult is one around stigmas so when we do a mental health overview and teach people what mental health is in today's society and how we view it we talk about stigma and everyone has their own idea of what mental health is or how it affects people and that's likely because of a stigma that they've developed throughout their life you know, some people might think that someone who has mental health issues is crazy, but that's just a stigma. That's just down to lack of education, lack of understanding, lack of awareness of what someone is dealing with. So again, it's perception as well, right? We talked about that already. So when you start using terms like mental well-being or mental fitness, it reframes away from that term of mental health that we've all got very, very used to and probably a little bit fed up of in some ways, I think. Because a lot of people are hearing mental health this, mental health that, but actually there's so many intricacies to mental health that once you start getting into, okay, we think about it as well-being, someone's overall well-being. How are they emotionally, physically, psychologically? Uh, what's their physiology like? How are they moving? How are they reacting? You know, what's their body language? Everything in that respect, I would say, is mental health. It's bringing all of it together. And that's why I use the term always mental well-being because it encompasses and brings everything together as a whole. Yep. And you can start to look at it from that perspective rather than someone who has mental health issues and getting labeled as crazy through some sort of stupid stigma. Whereas if you think, okay, well, mental well-being is about how you're feeling, how your emotions, how are you, how resilient are you? How do you react in situations? What's your level of emotional intelligence? All of that comes to well-being. And once you, again, once you reframe it and get away from that term, it's just viewed so differently. And so 
We're looking at emotional well-being. Mm-hmm. Is that on, on a different scale than mental well-being or is it part of the mental game? It's definitely part of it. And I think, you know, at, at the beginning we talked about how there's different uh, variants of mental health. So, you know, mental health, mental well-being, mental ill health. There are definitely boundaries or borders where people get a little bit confused. So diagnosable conditions and things that are mentally wrong with people mental ill health so schizophrenia severe depression generalized anxiety disorders are all mental health conditions or mental ill health conditions which in their own right need specialist treatment and specialist medications or whatever it might be you can't term them in the same areas as emotional resilience emotional well-being or emotional mental well-being whatever it might be because they're completely different we all have mental health. Everyone does. Some days it can be good. Some days it can be bad, right? We all go through it. We all suffer with feelings of worry, anxiety, depression, nervousness, whatever. And that doesn't mean you have a mental health condition, but it means you're suffering, not suffering, but you're experiencing mental health because it varies. It goes up and down every day. So when you start trying to generalize it too much under one term and bring everything together, it blurs it too much the more education and understanding there is about all these different areas and intricacies around mental well-being as a whole, the better that understanding gets. And to be honest, the more you understand it, the more you can deal with it better, the better you can react to situations. And that comes that comes down to emotional intelligence. That's a part of well-being, but you could argue it's not a part of mental mental health because emotional intelligence is, is you and how you react and how you deal with situations. But it plays a huge part in the overall well-being of you. Do you think that emotional intelligence um, is something that people can understand for themselves what it is and how to develop it? Yes, absolutely. With the right guidance, probably. I think a lot of people think that they are stuck with a certain level of emotional intelligence and reaction. This is who I am. This is how I react. This is how I panic. This is what I do. How does one, like, how do I, what is the best way for me to get a grasp of on the spectrum of emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. where I stand. So there's tons of um, online assessments you can do, actually, mm. which are really simple, really easy tools. Um, I think there's, there's one, uh, Thomas, it's just called the Thomas assessment, I think it is. And it's literally, you go online, you fill out a questionnaire, which is around about 10 to 15 minutes, and it gives you a ton of different scenarios and situations and questions, and you rate what you how you would feel or think or react in that situation. And then it'll produce a graph or a wheel, like a giant wheel, with different areas, um, around about seven or eight different areas, looking at different components of emotion, emotional intelligence, and it, it kind of ranks you on them. But the important thing to remember is that that kind of assessment is only as good as the information you're putting into it. So what I was going to say, because even like, okay, Aaron, how would you react in situation X? I don't think people know how they no. would react, right? <laughs> no, because there's a whole load of other circumstances that could change that. What if you've had a, a stressful day? What if one of your kids is hurt? What if you're tired? There's a family? What if you're tired? What if you're hungry? Yeah. Right. And I'm terrible when I'm hungry. If I'm hungry, don't talk to me. <laughs> yeah. If I'm fed and happy, then yeah, I'm, I'm good. So there's a whole load of you know influencing factors that people don't consider, yeah. and emotional intelligence changes on a regular basis. You can use it as a, a guideline to understand where you are broadly, but under it will move up and down on a regular basis depending on you know. What, what's happening in your life on a day-to-day basis.
Is there any active physical activities that you do in in the modules um, to help pin a point to help people understand what it is you're talking about through yeah. some physical activity or physical movement or demonstration? Yep. Yeah, we do a couple. Um, so we'll we'll do. It's a really good point because, in my opinion, I think physical activity reinforces learning. Right, if you get someone doing something physically and they're understanding the reasons why and can be shown the reasons at the end of it they'll retain that information longer. So we, we do that. Um, two examples I can give you. We do um, one on resilience or mental toughness. We link because obviously mental toughness and resilience are a little bit different. Um, so it's probably more the mental toughness side. Uh, we do uh, using uh, boxing gloves and pads. We'll, we'll teach someone how to punch first if they don't know. And then we'll get them to do as many punches as they possibly can and go as long as they can. Until they're just fatigued? Yeah, until they're fatigued. And then just see how mentally tough they are. And then what we'll do is we'll we'll talk to them and do some other bits and pieces. And then when they've recovered, get them to go again and get them to reframe something or, you know, give them some encouragement and coaching as well. So by by doing that, we, we tend to do two different things. So we do that for mental resilience or toughness. And we do it also but, for something but so, called... But, so, but, so like you're speaking to them as they're getting fatigued. Yeah, you're so throwing you're in bits of information. Exactly. And just seeing how they react. Yeah. And their reaction is the proof yes, they'll normally of go, the concept that you're trying to yeah, present to them. They'll normally go for longer, do more, throw harder punches, whatever. But they what, like even just better. you know yelling, shouting at someone. Yeah. Like, keep going. So Small we, things like that. We use that as a perfect example for something called social support. So social support is another module that we have in one of the courses where essentially that is what is the support network around you and how do you perform when you have that? And there's been a really interesting study done, which I read, which shows that an athlete who has been injured will recover faster from the injury if they have a social support network around them. When I say social support, I don't mean like social networks, but I mean like family, friends, people who are understanding that uh, their coaching team understanding them and supporting them mentally and emotionally, they will recover quicker. No change in their their rehab, no change in what they're doing to to get fitter, better, stronger, whatever. Just because they have someone supporting them emotionally, they will recover faster than someone who doesn't, which I think is amazing. Like if you can just have someone around you understanding that you might be feeling depressed or anxious or low or upset because you can't go and do the sport that you love or perform how you want to perform you will recover faster than someone who doesn't have that. That blows my mind. Like the mind is that powerful to help people and having that connection with people helps. So we do a, an example with that as well. We do the same task. So someone puts on boxing gloves, yeah. get them to throw as many punches as they can in, in 30 seconds, right? So we'll, we'll either try and count them or we'll just roughly guess in 30 seconds where, where they're at. And what we ask the entire room to do is on the first attempt is stay completely silent. No one says anything. This person is just up there room's dead quiet the, the person holding the pads coaching them isn't saying anything then we'll and do they're, it they're just punching and they're just they punching time just punching for 30 seconds as many okay. punches as they can do in okay. 30 seconds then what we'll do is we will repeat the exact same activity but this time everyone in the room has to support them as much as they possibly can the coach is shouting at them encouraging them the room is like shouting come on let's go let's go i'm getting just, chills just thinking about it exactly right <laughs> the room's cold um, but, um so they're just everyone's shouting and just encouraging them and that that vibe and that energy that is in the room changes the physiology of the person performing the punches and makes them go harder stronger longer everything they will always do more in the region for about around about 20 percent 
Always doing more. Always. Not had a person do less yet. So you will always do more. And I think that's quite obvious when you think about it. Like if you're trying to do an activity on your own, no matter what it is, just say it some sort of physical activity, you're in the gym, you're lifting weights in the gym, you're on your own. You probably give up before your body can. Your mind will give up before your body. So a lot of people say, oh, I can't go to the gym on my own. A lot of people I need do. to be in a class, I need yeah, to be yeah. with someone, I yeah. need to have a coach. Is so is is that an a an element, element of social of, support? But is it an element of mental toughness or resilience? It's a lack of. So not being able Yeah, not being able to, to go on go their to the own. gym on your own and do your best yeah. is a lack of It's a, a more probably a lack of resilience, but it could well be linked to self confidence, intimidation, a whole self you know, self consciousness, yeah. whatever it might be, a whole load of other stuff too. But ultimately if you want to achieve something bad enough and you are confident enough to go and do it but you won't go unless your friend goes you need your friend for that support so you need that either social support or you need that that, so is that a uh, negative thing if you're absolutely not no but if you're relying on if you're relying on social support to Mm -hmm. exist is that can that be like a crutch in your existence no we're social people we're social creatures right humans are made to be social that's in our DNA. We are social animals, mammals, whatever yeah. we are, right? We are social creatures from our ancestry pasts. Yeah. So that's never going to change. And having a reliance or a crutch for that isn't a bad thing. You know, maybe aligning schedules and getting someone to come to the gym when you want to go. Or, Inconvenient. You know, yeah. yeah, more inconvenience. Yeah. But it doesn't make it a bad thing. People always perform harder in a group. So there's a, a study that's also been done around group exercise. And a group will perform exercise 94% longer if they're in a group than what they would do on their own. So if you're on your own and you're going on a run, for example, you would run 94% longer if you had someone with you or a group versus on your own, unless you're a, a runner, someone who enjoys it or whatever. But statistically speaking, you will perform more and harder and longer and put more effort in in a group than you would do on your own. I can vouch for that yep. only in cases where the group is pushing <laughs> yes, themselves. Yes, absolutely. If it's an easy training, easy session as a group, I almost feel like I'm demotivated and I want to do less. Yeah. But if people you around me are sweating and suffering yeah. and all thinking about quitting, yeah, that drives me. Feeding off the energy, right? Like, I don't know if you saw the, it's called, I think, the Fittest on Earth documentaries. It came mm. out a few years ago on Netflix for CrossFit. And it was it followed all the CrossFit games and the CrossFit athletes, and you know the way that CrossFit games are worked. It's hundreds of people competing at the same time and killing themselves. No money. But, yeah, no money. But I would always watch it and feel massively inspired afterwards. And I'm like, I want to go and train now because I've just watched people doing it and you know pushing themselves to the limit. Yeah. And I wanted to go and get in the gym and just go and do it too because it felt inspiring to me. And I think that's the same. If you're in a group setting, if you're in a room full of people, or even with one or two people who are really pushing themselves, it pushes you to push yourself harder. Well, there you go. They also, they, people that have run uh, marathons, which Mm -hmm. I haven't, uh, say that it's way easier to run an event than just to go for a 42-kilometer run on your own. Yeah, absolutely. Because you've got people around you. Yeah. But then it's that element of pressure, people actually watching you and whatever else. So these modules, um, mm-hmm. so you and your co-founder put these together yep. based on your experiences. And you said uh, Dave Earl has been uh, advocating for this, kind of building this for a couple of decades. Yeah, he's done a lot of his work in 
probably what I'd say the reactive area of mental health to begin mm. with. He started his kind of work in, in mental health to help people with uh, drink and drug addictions and helping them recover and turn their lives around and, and change their lives in that respect. Um, you know, he had he had experiences of his family and his sister and his parents of you know issues of drink and, and drugs and stuff. So he has a personal story around that where that fueled him to want to help others. And I think more so now in the last couple of years, um, since we met and kind of talked about the ideas and, and views of it, he's certainly changed more towards, well, not changed, he has completely changed towards prevention, empowerment and helping people before they need help. Because the numbers must look like this. Yeah. In terms of people, you know, suffering or yeah, yeah, feeling absolutely. just unable yep. to. Um, well, one in one in four people will be will suffer with a mental health issue, but those are only the people who are seeking diagnosis. So, you got to think, men who don't want to be vulnerable, who don't want to talk, and don't want to be stigmatized as someone with mental health issues, won't go and seek help. So that number of one in four, realistically, I reckon, is one in two people. You know, who are not seeking diagnosis, we don't know about. And they are out there. They're struggling. There's so many people out there who struggle on their own. How did you link up with uh, Dave? A very random story. <laughs> so he's from the boxing world, right? Yeah, he is. He has he owns a boxing gym, and um, his his son Maxi uh, knows my fiance, um, and he was they were looking for a coach to come and join their gym to help with classes or put on a class or whatever it might be to to grow and expand their gym, and. Uh, my, my partner Holly, she said to me, you know, would you be interested in, in going to coach down there for kickboxing? I was like, yeah, I would. I'd really like to go down there actually and do that. So reached out to him, had a conversation, and I started doing kickboxing classes at his gym for a period of time. And then we kind of just, because being in the same area, same environment, we found out we have tons in common. I mean, Dave's a, a lot older than me. He's um, born in, what, 1963. So I was born in 1987. So there's quite a big difference in age but we have so much in common in terms of our life our story our journey what we've done dave was a kickboxer he competed i think he held a british championship as well um he has you know boxing as well he's, he's, he's been his life and there's just so many things even down to i think our dads had the same job when we were growing up his dad was a, a truck driver for hgvs my dad's also a driver for trucks and stuff like that and just the more we spoke it was just like there's so much here in common. How is this even possible when there's like a 20 year age gap, you know, age difference? And then um started sharing, you know, the work I do with with mental health and well-being around coaching and mentoring people and the prevention and this my idea of preventative care. And then the more we spoke, the more it just seemed like a, a great thing to to do and develop. And here we are today. Actually, what started the business <laughs> randomly is um we were me, Dave, and Maxi were stood in the in the middle of the boxing gym just talking, and Dave had booked the Arnold Sports Festival exhibition to take his boxing gym to to go and exhibit his gym at there, and try and sell some merchandise, some boxing gloves, t-shirts, and other bits that he had. And me and his son were like, "You're a, a small gym from a, a small town going to compete against some of the biggest gyms in the UK who have spent tens of thousands of pounds to exhibit at this event." What's going to bring people to you over what they're doing and what makes you different? And we couldn't come up with a convincing reason. So I kind of floated the idea of, well, why don't we try and do something different? Why don't we create something for mental health and well-being in the fitness space? Because no one's doing it really at the moment. And then it just snowballed from there. And then Dave just threw out this name, Tribox. Um, and then... What, what is the meaning behind the name? Um, so 
the meaning behind the name is and initially when we started the business it was going to be more based around boxing and coaching boxing instructors around mental health and well-being so that's where the box comes from that's the boxing element we decided to keep it try is three pillars we base the business on, on three pillars so we have uh, mental physical and social well-being so when you bring all of those together um, on our logo logo you'll see mind body and tribe so mind mental body physical tribe social tribal creatures we are you know we, we come from tribes ancestry and everything as well so it kind of links back to that um, but that's the, the meaning of the name and, and how it was kind of came about. But the way it actually just got mentioned is Dave just blurted it out in the middle of the gym, like try box. And we were like, works, that works really well. And then we started forming everything based off of that. And then here we are today. The rest is history. Yeah, uh, pretty cool. And what, um, what gave you the confidence that these modules would help people um, and would get people to overcome certain things or use it as a um, as a stepping stone to build from and because is that the goal for these people that are yeah. showing up to to help themselves progress yeah so i think there's two points there to cover two two questions so um what gave us the confidence that this would work is life experience having been there done it been through it uh myself and and dave as well to some part we know that this stuff works we know that it helps people um you know, having been developing these kind of ideas and theories around the work that I do for the last five, six years, I've seen so many examples of it working so well in all different industries. Nothing had been put together specifically for the fitness world, which is what we've done now, obviously. We saw that gap in the market, but ultimately we can take this to any industry and have impact and benefit and value. Yeah. We can, we, we, we go and do corporate stuff as well. So we take the, the workshops that we do, we take to corporate world and we'll go sit with, bunch of business owners or, or uh, teams in business and talk about these the same things because it all applies to everyone and everything we do so it's not just fitness we've just seen a a gap in the market for the fitness world where we know we can have a big impact so i talked earlier about compound interest right what we want to do is have a compound effect on people so um one Pos trainer positive yeah compound, yeah yeah exactly right so one person that we coach that coach may have 100 clients let's say right that 100 people that they coach will share this information maybe on average with two or three people that they know. Those two or three people will share that information with another three or four people they know. Yeah. And that just keeps growing and growing and growing. So over time, you end up impacting you know, thousands, if not millions of people just through training a number of coaches, which is very small. So you spread that information through secondary education, which for us is the big impact. It's about the bigger picture. How can you help people? How can you develop? And what's the most value you can add to people, communities, and societies with minimal effort i guess yeah and the second part of your question i've forgotten now i think i, I forgot too um <laughs> i think it was all about like the, like you know what made you realize that maybe in a group setting mm -hmm. that you could make it happen because you said before you started tribox you were doing these things working with people mentoring yeah. guiding people uh but then a group setting is a whole nother beast right because now it i'm is. sitting here with how many people in a, we keep the group small Okay. For that reason, how many? So what we, is small? I think maximum we'll do is sixteen. Okay, but that's which is pretty big, right? If I'm sitting here with sixteen people that I have to, that I don't yeah. know and I have to be vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. So I say maximum sixteen, but yeah. typically ten. But even still, I think because of you're and right, it can be daunting for people. Yeah. Go on. No, so like, so if you're doing a group of sixteen versus ten, mm -hmm. do you recognize a uh, a difference in the results that you get from the group? Do you know what the bigger groups? 
recently have been more open i found that some of the smaller groups to begin with in the, in the early days were i don't know maybe a bit skeptical about sharing and i think we were still developing our technique and how to get information out of people uh, maybe yeah. so there was Juice maybe a bit of that out of them yeah. yeah exactly whereas now i think we've really nailed it and how we how we interact with people the, the things that we do with them the tasks that we do the questions that we ask and now it just naturally gets people talking and you'll always find in a group there are some people more willing to share than others can you but um you can identify them quite can easily. you can you put me on the spot now with a couple of techniques yeah well um, the easiest thing you can do is if you're in a room and you you notice you've got someone talking way more than others giving way more feedback answering questions and just sharing their opinion more is not ask them right that <laughs> they're not going to talk unless you ask them to most of the time in these settings mm. so what i'll always do is i'll i'll just go around the room i'll just say someone's name like oh george tell me tell me your thoughts or, or brian tell me what you think you know and just get people to engage the more you can engage and get them talking to you directly and let them feel that they're talking to you the more they're willing to share so it works a lot better that way whereas if you're just like throwing it out there oh can someone tell me blah blah blah, blah, blah you'll get one person who feels confident in the room who will share and talk and want to say everything yeah whereas if you're so you're almost like conducting the room you yeah. conduct you conduct the room and conduct the environment to be in the way you want it to be and by interacting with people you know equally across the room you'll already you'll naturally get people to share some people are still less willing to share even when you have that conversation with them but let's say if you know, ask a question say tell me about your thoughts on mental well-being or mental resilience or whatever it might be if they give a very narrow answer, probe into it. Ask more questions. Give them leading questions that they have to answer. You don't, you don't want to back them into a corner and make them feel pressured, but you want to make them feel that they're contributing in the same way. So like, you know, oh, that's a great idea, but what do you think about this? Or what, what's your views on this? Or, wow, like, I really like that idea. Can you tell me more about it? You know, the same way you would coach and mentor someone in any situation. It's the same kind of thing. Yeah. I use those same skills in a group setting as I would do individually. And it, it works well. It seems to be. What is the biggest thing maybe you learned um, from, you know, running these group sessions? Because you run them yourself. Yeah, we do. Yeah, myself and Dave run. And, yeah. Okay, so both yeah. of you. Um, so what have you learned, like, from, like, if you take yourself from before Tribox days to mm -hmm. now, um, what has changed in your mind? Because you've, I'm assuming, impacted many lives yeah. um, along the way or many individuals. So do you feel any differently now? A hundred percent. So I've done this, this little video the other day about myself and our kind of six basic needs as humans. So typically speaking, we have, we have six needs. Um, my top priority used to be significance. So feeling significant and feel like I'm important. Whereas now, like, I don't want to feel important. I don't care about that. I care about contribution. What am I doing to add value to something? How am I helping someone? How am I serving someone? How am I making them the best version that they can be possibly be for themselves? And I think by developing all these courses and this content, it's just reinforced in me that service and contribution is my absolute purpose. I will be doing this for the rest of my life until I can't talk anymore. <laughs> like I will be helping as many people as I possibly can in as many ways as I can with the information, knowledge, experience that I have. And just doing what I can to get it out there. So, but has that changed? Is that was that the change in That's you? Changed. Is um, That's contribution going above um, yeah. significance? Yeah, I think I certainly wanted to always contribute in some way, but before Tribox, it was more about feeling significant and feeling important. 
which is fine. People want to feel that way and that's not an issue at all. Yeah. But for me, in terms of my my needs and what I want to do, significance felt a bit empty and it felt a bit hollow. You know, getting to leadership positions, management positions, whatever it might be in the corporate world that I did. It's okay when you get there, but it doesn't really mean anything. What, do you think because significance is not necessarily correlated with contribution? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, there's two different ways of thinking about it because you can be significant by just by being important, holding a position of status, right? If you've got a, a high paying job or you, you manage lots of people and whatever, you can you can gain significance from that. It doesn't mean you gain contribution, right? You're not maybe contributing to them or helping them or developing them or adding value in the right way. Whereas actually when you focus on just helping people and providing a service. Contributing, yeah. Yeah, you're just contributing. It doesn't matter if you're significant or not. I don't care how important I am. If I'm helping one person or a thousand people, it doesn't matter either way. One person is enough for me to do something. That I'd done a, a talk on stage a few weeks ago here in London. And, you know, at the start of it, there was only, I think, 20 people in the room. By the end of it, there was, I think, three or 400. And the amount of messages we got afterwards from people saying, wow, that was amazing. And this has helped me here and helped me here. And it's changed the way I think about this. It was really validating. And it allowed me to see that there's amazing levels of contribution that you can give and, and you know just from talking but again i didn't feel any more significant or important or special because of it even if people are saying oh this has changed my life it's like okay that's great i'm, I'm happy that i've added that value to you now I'll go and do that with someone else now pass that knowledge on what are the other four pillars that we rely on so there's significance contribution love um Oh, I can't remember them now. But are they six that we need to um, always like um, yeah, rank for ourselves? The six basic needs that is suggested in psychology that everyone needs to have some level of to mm. feel happy or feel fulfilled. And I say, yeah, contribution, connection or love. Safety. Significance. Safety may be one of them. I have to look it up. I can't remember off the top of yeah. my head. Okay, but, um, interesting. Mm. Um and in terms of, has your approach changed? Is there anything that you were doing a few years ago that you completely put away now? Like, this, yeah. that was the wrong approach? Yeah, I think early days I think, of, I think also, it's very relevant for like, was it what we teach and what we do is because everything's dynamic, everything's yeah. evolving. We move on from things, we come back to things, we invent new things, we, you know, we take some bits of a specific modality and sprinkle it over another modality. So yeah. it's always moving. Mm. And that's the key, I think. It's learning to become adaptable and flexible and dynamic. If you're not doing that, you are going to struggle and you're not going to grow and you're not going to offer as much value and impact as you possibly can. If you develop something and think, this is great as it is, I'm leaving it like that and I'm going to walk away from it and it's going to carry on as it is. Yeah, That thing will fail. So you have to keep iterating, developing, building and being aware that you need to do that. People will sometimes try and do it or try and do like a lessons learned or try and improve something at certain periods. For me, it's a constant thing. Anytime we do a course, anytime we have conversations, anytime I do a talk on stage, straight away, I evaluate and, and want to understand how it's had the best impact. What did I do well? What did I not do well? What was the failure? What was the success? And, and how can it be better moving forwards? And even after every course I deliver, I do the same thing. I'll go home and I'll sit and I'll reflect on that. Is there a... Uh... Are there more males than females? Is it a male strictly thing that you offer? I think it's, a, it's a bit balanced. We have we have both male and female. I think we're probably 
probably coached more males than females to date so far, but it's not that different. Yeah, you, so you think like um, if you have a group of 10, then it's it's absolutely fine having 50% male, 50% female and yeah. delivering the information the same way. Yeah, 100%. And it should impact everyone. I think it's better because you get more insights and you get different perspectives and you get people with different opinions sharing from their own viewpoint and their perception. Women's perception will always be different to men's because of their experiences they've had. Their lived experience is different. Yeah. So being able to share that and getting people to understand it and again, coming back to understanding the perception and uh, interpretations of others is is key. And I think yeah. the more you can do that, just the better and more well-rounded learning can be. You said that one in four people, yeah. um, in the UK at least, struggle yeah. with some um, level of um, mental well-being issues. Yeah. Um, but probably one in two because not everyone is seeking a, a diagnosis, a diagnosis yeah. or looking out for help and just keeping it bottling up for themselves and just carrying on with, mm -hmm. with life, right? What would you like? What are certain things that that person, that average person, is doing? The one that's not seeking help and not seeking um, diagnosis and just living life. Um, what are what are certain things that they're doing that they can stop doing? You know, so maybe yeah. a couple of habits that will help change their lives yep. what are they doing Every, like, like everything for, for example we, we we touched on like, like bottling up yeah, all these absolutely. things to yourself and not sharing with it not having an outlet so yep. i would consider that being an important one that probably yep. everyone should find an outlet not for everything could be the way we said it could be the woods could be your mother could be your girlfriend but have an outlet yeah absolutely having an outlet is, is massively a, a key thing that everyone should have one way or another and that like you say it can be talking but it doesn't always have to be talking it can be physical it can be even writing journaling has been shown to be a huge outlet for people just writing stuff down writing down your feelings thoughts and emotions getting it on paper is almost as good as speaking it verbally so you know, that that's a, another outlet to consider there um and it's important to remember that not every outlet will work for everybody right my outlets when i was younger and probably even still today are physical exercise training punch bags kickboxing whatever it might be my my partner's outlets are, are talking. She wants to talk about things. Great, you know, understand that and, and realize that not everyone's are the same. Um, what shouldn't people be doing is probably everything that I was doing ten years ago, <laughs> bottling everything up, not talking, not sharing, not being vulnerable. Right, so holding everything in. And I think there's there's two important elements to that. If you're someone who's doing it yourself, you will know. You will know you don't share because you'll probably feel this overwhelming sense of sadness of depression of lack of identity and lack of purpose so if, if you're experiencing that you need to change it you need to be honest with yourself and become more self-aware and find things that give you joy give you fulfillment find that identify with your passion and and help you be happy there's a a concept that is we are not happy as people unless we're growing and that's you know not in the physical sense but in the the mental sense unless we are learning growing and developing we're not truly happy or fulfilled so find ways to do that find ways to identify with yep. your passion and to grow so in the tribox logo you mentioned you have the uh, the tri is the social the tribe and the physical uh so mental social physical yeah sorry mental oh, sorry. social physical yeah mind body and tribe yeah mind body mind body tribe the physical yes where does that come in um is it just the fact that Again, we are one organism and our physical health or well-being is tied to our mental and emotional yeah, well-being as well. Partly so, but I think there's a massive element where, you know, physical exercise can 
help with mental health and well-being and it to be honest for most people it is an outlet um, i mean you know i i struggled to imagine a world where a physical exercise is not a prerequisite could you imagine right <laughs> so, so do you still work out do you still active yeah, yeah, yeah. you said not, not, as re- not as religiously as um, not multiple times a day yeah. but but there's yeah. a lot of people even that i know that just never don't <laughs> just never mm-hmm. and if i um go two days without working out you feel terrible I can't even start like explaining how many demons I have in my brain yeah, and you feel the men- level of anxiety that I'm suffering like brain, from. Brain fog and all sorts, right? Can't focus, struggle with things. And that's quite normal. That's, so that's, that's really why normal. I'm like, maybe that can not solve 100% of someone's problems, but yeah. cover a chunk of it. It can help. So again, I'll, I'll go back to some statistics because I always remember these numbers because they always impact me hugely. And scary. Well, they're scary, right? Yeah. But 74% of the um, population in yeah. the UK, at least, are suffering with stress, mm-hmm. right? 9% of people are getting help. 9% out of 74. It's huge. Of that 74, only 6% of people are using exercise as a form of stress release. Mm. Now, if you feel stressed, if you feel worried or anxious and you go do a workout, how do you feel afterwards? Oh, so much. Um, I just have more clarity. Yeah. Perspective. Yeah. You feel less stressed. You yeah. feel better. You feel less anxious. Everything seems manageable. Manageable. Yeah, absolutely. But imagine only 6% of people who need that are only using it. Mm. Why, are the, why are the other 69% of people, 68% of people not doing that? Yeah. That's the key. The word discipline, mm-hmm. is that spoken about um, in your modules? Yeah. Is that so, And where does the, where does discipline fit in? So we on level two, we have um, the first two modules. The first one is motivation and the second one is discipline. So motivation fades, right? Motivation is there when things are enjoyable. Un- unreliable resource. Yeah, absolutely. But people think that you need to be motivated to go to the gym. You don't need to be motivated. You need to be disciplined. You need to make it a habit. If you're relying on motivation... Once you run out of motivation, which happens because when things stop being exciting, yeah, yeah, of course you will. We always do. You know, motivation is there when things are exciting, when they're new, when you're seeing massive growth and development. When you get to a point where things slow down a little bit or maybe it's cold outside or it's bad weather or you're not feeling too well, you're not going to be motivated to go and do it. Whereas if you're disciplined and you form a habit, it becomes much easier to maintain and sustain the work that you need to do. So we talk about discipline quite a lot, um, mostly with the differences between motivation and discipline and people understanding what they are and how you can use them and why we need to use them differently. Uh, motivation is there to, to form a habit. Discipline is there to maintain it. So once you can do that, you're, you're in a, a sustainable place. But if you don't develop discipline, you'll be these people who go to the gym, lose a bunch of weight because they're motivated to lose it, hit their goal, stop working out, put on the weight, go through that cycle up and down gaining weight gaining losing weight gaining weight losing weight and i think that's probably majority of the the population who work out for a reason i'm going on holiday i need to drop 10 pounds or i need to get into this dress that dress i need to do this people do that and they're motivated by a task they're not disciplined enough to stick to what they need to do looking at the bigger benefits of their overall health or their overall well-being so if you reframe it with people about, okay, well, why are you not motivated to be healthy for your kids in 10 years? Why are you not motivated to be 
physically active so you can still do the things that you enjoy into your later life in retirement. When you start saying that to people, they start realizing that actually I need to probably reconsider or reevaluate the way I look at motivation and discipline because actually all, all you need to do is reframe it to people that if you can change the way they look at motivation and switch it to a discipline, when you look at the bigger picture, longer sustainability, longevity, that becomes easier to maintain. Whereas if you're relying solely on motivation, you'll run out of that as soon as you hit your goal or get close to your goal. Most people don't even achieve their goals. They say, if you want to lose 10 pounds, you get to eight, you give up because yeah, that's close enough because you're not disciplined. <laughs> Whereas actually the motivation is, is there, but it's faded. Yeah. So, so you can't rely on it nope. for any for any mental well-being you can i think you can rely on it to get started motivation is great to get started as i mentioned give you the push ago, it gives you the push it's exciting building something is exciting right anything you want to do when it's new fresh and you're building something you're seeing results is exciting yeah when you get to that point where things plateau a little bit or you've just got to continue and it's there's not much change not much growth that's when it gets boring that's when people don't want to do it. that's where you have to be disciplined you must have learned that early yeah, on absolutely like training at a high level for, <laughs> yeah. right because i wasn't motivated to go to the gym I wasn't motivated to go and get punched in the face i wasn't motivated to go and get up and go running at 5 a.m yeah you know, you're not motivated to do those things yeah and maybe once a month you will be right yeah absolutely yeah. more so if you've got like a, a fight coming up mm. that motivates you because you know you need to train harder to for a particular event or a fight to compete yeah that motivates you then but when you're between fights, six months or so, where you've got no no fight coming up or anything like that, what are you motivated for then? Nothing, really. There's no external or you know intrinsic motivation. So at that point, you have to rely on the discipline and habit building that you've developed to maintain, sustain, and and grow as well. Obviously, you you can do absolutely, but you know to to maintain that level of effort has to be from discipline and not motivation. And and that was I learned that really young. So I think for me, it's just become natural. You know, I learned to be disciplined from the age of like 12, 13 years old. Well, I'll start going training every week at this time and then it become multiple times a week and then multiple times a day and you just get more and more disciplined. And that was mostly because of passion, something that I loved, something I enjoyed, something I was good at. But then, you know, when, when you get to the point of you're 10, 15 years in, into a career or something, what are you motivated for then? That's the hard part. Mm-hmm. And that's transferable to anything. That's not just, you know, sport life. That's daily life. You got a job. When you get your new job, it's exciting. You're learning something new. You're meeting new people. You're doing different things. Five years in, two years in, three years in, you're probably a bit bored. Six months. Six months in, you're probably a bit bored. <laughs> yeah. how, how do you stay motivated to perform your best, to hit your targets, achieve what you need to do, to keep growing, earn your bonus, whatever it might be? How do you stay motivated for that? You don't. It comes to discipline. It comes to setting small routine and habits and things that you can work on, little goals. So it's, again, journey and goal setting is something we cover as well because it all, this all links. And people often think about the destination rather than the journey. Whereas actually the important thing, all the growth, the learning, the fun, the the value is in the journey. What's your next step? What are you doing next? Forget about the big picture. Forget about that five-year plan. It's so hard though, huh? For people to grow. It is. Back. Yeah, it is. It's really hard to do. But I think the easy way I reframe it to people is if I ask you what your five-year plan is and you tell me something, if I come back in a year's time and that five-year plan hasn't changed, you failed. You haven't worked towards your five-year plan because on your journey, your goal should keep moving. 
right? If you're working towards a certain goal over five years and you're not moving that goal, is it really growth? I, w- I wouldn't say so. I'd argue that it's not. Yeah. Whereas if you keep moving that goal and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you're on a constant and sustainable growth journey, continuous improvement. Whereas if you're not doing that, you know, you're you're stuck and you're looking at one thing and you're focused too much on that destination. Look at the journey, look at the next step you need to do to achieve the next thing, then the next thing, then the next thing. When your goal keeps shifting, it keeps moving and you keep growing and you keep developing and it becomes a, a path of continuous improvement. Yeah. So, and then again, that comes back to discipline too. But you can also use that as motivation depending on what your goal is. Another stoic, um, just because I listened to um, a bunch of uh, stoic philosophy podcasts <laughs> you, recently. You came prepared. Um, <laughs> no, another one about discipline is mm-hmm. just one that stuck with me is that they believed that the hardest discipline to maintain is the discipline of discipline. Yeah, absolutely. Staying um, staying disciplined is the hardest of all disciplines. But, but, but it's not not only staying disciplined is the way they put it, mm. or trying to interpret what they put in, in writing, is knowing how to be disciplined, when to be disciplined, yeah. when not to be disciplined. Absolutely. Uh, like you're being even when you're undisciplined, you're being disciplined about being undisciplined. Yeah. Um so I find that I'm still trying to, you know, break that concept break, down. Yeah, break that yeah. concept down. Um, but also helped me realize because maybe you know similar to you i think i did learn discipline at a young age Mm -hmm. and then also understanding that it's not you know i don't get the stamp of knowing discipline and then it's just i'm disciplined forever changes it's it's a rocky boat right it's uh it changes and different types of discipline for different actions for different places for different when you 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 grow your priorities change so you you have to adjust right? right your discipline um like you know there were let's say even i hear people who say that they're way more disciplined now with sleep than in the past so maybe you know you know you're super motivated so you want to wake up at 5 a.m and you want to run and you want to do all these things and but if you're not getting your eight hours of sleep whatever so you're, you're being counterproductive yep um so you have to like know how to play with this discipline of course discipline is not just Go, 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 go. That's been a a really interesting shift over the last two, three years because two, three years ago, everyone was all about, I'm working all the hours. I'm doing all this and I'm staying up all night and I'm not getting sleep. Look at me, I'm amazing. Whereas now actually everyone's like, I need to sleep. I need to focus on that. Maybe we learned that it's unsustainable long term. Absolutely, it is, yeah. And you know, don't get me wrong. I'll use periods of time where I have very little sleep, you know, four or five hours a night because that's what I need to do in that moment. And that's not bad, but it's about that sustainability. How long can you do this for, right? And it's the same same kind of the principle you just mentioned, that as long as you're aware that you can't do it forever, because it will have a detrimental impact on your well-being, yeah. then that's fine. But if you need to do it to achieve a goal or a task or whatever, something you need to do for work, whatever it might be, that, that's also fine. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. But when, when we talk about being adaptable and dynamic and looking at what's going on for growth and development being aware of the changes in the way people or societies are thinking is another key one because that is a perfect example there of you know everyone used to want to stay up late and work all the hours and get up early and be shown to do all these amazing things now everyone's like i need to be in bed by nine o'clock <laughs> yeah so you know that's a, a cultural shift that's happened yeah really interesting um look i uh, i love what you um teach i want to know more about it myself um, maybe even experience uh, you know some hands-on 
um, because I also I know for myself definitely I could um, you know use some education around these things or some practical education yep. um, and many people around me you know males and females who yeah. you know a mixture of people that maybe think that they've figured it out and know everything but they probably don't no one um, has none of us no one, yeah exactly yeah. Um, or people that also know that they have not figured it out yet yeah. um, and they need support they need help yeah. um, and they you know because also you know if you take the average person that maybe knows that they need help mm -hmm. they, they don't know how to point their finger on what they need help with but they know yeah. they need help and if they don't have the right, right um, or an a, a educated social support system around them, mm -hmm. um, it could, you know, also almost be detrimental because the, the social. You said like we rely on the tribe, the so this the the social element of our lives, but yeah. that social element can also drag us down. It can also it can. hurt us. It can also put us in the in the wrong places. Um, so, again, just connecting to that, I know. A lot of individuals who can massively benefit from just understanding what the implications are of yeah. being in a specific social setting or yeah, having certain feelings or when to push yourself when not to push yourself um that's it, so interesting because those are the exact demographic of people that we've seen the biggest and most influential change in who we coach the ones who are aware they need some level of help and support but they don't know where to turn for it so really simple example personal trainers, coaches, gym instructors, they will have a whole bunch of clients. You know, again, let's go back to the the, the one in four number. If they've got 100, 100 people, they've probably got 40 or, 40 or so people, 50 people, maybe even more, who are suffering with mental health issues, who are under their care, let's say. And clients who have personal trainers and coaches will offload and talk to their personal trainer like they're a therapist or a counsellor, but they're not. But they feel safe to do it. Yeah. And they're in an environment where they feel like that's someone they can talk to and they can get help with because they're being vulnerable, they're pushing themselves to the limit, they're sweating, you know, they're they're needing help with exercise, whatever it might be. So they feel vulnerable and they feel like they're in a safe space to share. And I think that's absolutely brilliant. But the problem where that falls down is these coaches and trainers do not have the knowledge of how to deal with that information. And what we've seen a lot of is coaches and, and guys coming to us saying, I have a load of clients who come to me and they share this stuff with me and I want to help them, but I don't know how. But also, they're offloading on me. I'm absorbing all of this. Yeah. I don't know how I process it. How do I deal with these issues? How do I you know, go home if I'm a single person living in London in a one-bedroom apartment? How do, I, how do I process this if I've got no one to talk to myself? And then you move that on a stage. Whereas if this coach or trainer is a freelancer who there's tons of in the industry, they don't have a support network around them from a, a team, a management team, supervision team, HR department, whatever it might be. They've got no one's turned to there as well, even more so. So they're, they're in survival mode. All they're the going home in complete survival yeah. mode and probably feeling absolutely terrible. So what we found is the education we give has allowed them people to find strategies to help themselves as well as their coaches and, oh, sorry, as well as their clients. Yeah. So the idea is that the approach that we have and what we do helps not just the clients of, of the coach, but it helps the coach helps the coach become more empowered and become the coach that clients need because clients need someone who they can go to and turn to and feel vulnerable with, but also get the support back from them. Yeah. And at the minute, that feedback loop of support is generally missing because coaches don't know how to deal or what to do in that situation. 
and some are trying and they're putting great efforts in but then you know every situation every eventuality you can't prepare for yeah and that's where our kind of education really helps them to develop and push through and and look at things in a different way amazing um look we've been we've been talking about this for like two hours now. I've, i could go uh, another two hours i know i know no, me too i could keep asking as well um but it's no it is and again i am very intrigued um i'd love to experience some hands-on stuff myself absolutely we'll get um, you in yeah um and yeah and i can't wait to uh find out more and maybe have you on again in the future Absolutely. Uh, so thank you for making your way from uh, oxfordshire you're welcome um and yeah so thank you for being here and until the next time do you want to tell people just quickly um again the website where they can find you where they can even sign up for these um, sure so sessions? Our, our website is just tribox.uk um, on there you'll find all the information about t-r-i-b-o-x yeah t-r-i-b-o-x b-o-x dot uk um all the information on courses on there. Um, our Instagram is at Tribox. I think maybe an underscore after it. Um, simple to find. Google yeah. Tribox mental well-being, mental health. You'll find us straight away. Fantastic. Um, you can sign up online. You can contact me directly. You can contact Dave directly. We're, we're, our con contact information is all available now. Aaron, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it.